Yeah, we can record it and then um, they can choose whatever they like. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to The Northern Voice. My name is Shabina Aslam and today we're going to be discussing the role class plays in British theatre. I've got with me Mandy Colleran, Matthew Zia and Becky Bowe. Mandy was born and brought up in Liverpool and currently lives in the heart of Islington, a very posh and hipster part of London. She's not only a fabulous actor, but also a disability activist. Matthew is currently artistic director of the Actors Touring Company. He's the former associate artistic director of the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester and has been director in residence at Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse, associate director of Theatre Royal Stratford East. He's also currently an associate artist at Nottingham Playhouse. Becky Bow is an actor and creative born and raised in Stockport, Manchester. She trained at the Manchester School of Theatre and graduated in 2019. The following year, she was employed by her drama school as a graduate research and development officer to help pilot a supported audition scheme, an access scheme aimed at helping prospective auditionees from underrepresented groups to get into drama school. So thank you all so much for joining me today. Mandy, could you tell me a bit more about your background in the arts and your activism? Yeah, I first kind of started being employed in the arts by, purely by accident. I um, graduated with a degree in sociology and it was when Mrs Thatcher was in full flow and ruling the roost. And like many graduates, I couldn't get a job when I first finished college, so... Um, went on a scheme, a local scheme in my community, a community development scheme, and they were setting up a welfare rights organisation. So they promised me that they would give me some training. But in the meantime, because it took so long to develop, there was a job advertised in the Liverpool Echo um, for an arts and disability organisation, and it said specifically they were looking for disabled people to apply. So I thought I'd apply just because I liked going to the theatre, I've done school productions, I read a lot, watched telly, and I thought it would just be um, a good experience of an interview, because I've not had a formal interview. And anyway, it was a job share post, and I got it, and that's kind of, was literally my introduction to the arts and disability arts, and suddenly I was surrounded by and meeting people, particularly other disabled people, who were kind of articulating the ideas and experiences that I'd had and recognised as a disabled person but hadn't yet um, developed the language for or been able to have had the conversations with other informed disabled people. So for me, the activism and the arts came at the same time. I mean, I'd always had left-wing politics, always been a feminist, but the disability stuff, as I said, not really had access to those conversations prior to that. So really all the arts involvement that I've had has come from that sense of using the arts as a tool for change as well as the creativity involved so that's kind of how I got involved and as I say I just applied for a job and I've never looked back since. So what about you Matthew? 
I grew up in East London in the 80s, uh, in Newham, uh, and Waltham Forest, single parent household, mixed race, Jamaican father, uh, somewhere in the world. Uh, <laughs> no, I knew where it was. He was in Plasto, not too far, but you know, a kind of strange relationship. Um, I guess I kind of acted out at school, possibly as a, a cry for attention because there wasn't much at home because mum was working or studying and I was in babysitters and, uh, you know, child minders and, and this kind of brilliant support network. Um, and then I, I guess I discovered that I could get a lot of attention through showing off on stage at some point really early on as well. Uh, and it felt good as well. Um, and then I wandered down to my local theatre, which was Stratford East, which was already steeped in this rich history of, you know, serving this community, ultimately, and taking those stories from the community, putting them on stage and Joan's continuous cycle. And I guess I got pulled into Joan's continuous cycle. Uh, and, I, you know, what, I, what always blew my mind, I guess, was seeing people who looked like me, sounded like me, dressed like me, up there playing everybody in the world. Um you know, this space of imagination. And Philip Headley, who ran the place at the time, uh, you know, I went in and I said, I'm a rapper. And he said, oh, you're a lyricist, are you? Uh, and I said, I make beats. Uh, and he said, oh, you're a composer, are you? Um, and so, you know, I had these little kind of hobbies. And he went, no, they're rich tools in, in, in the arts industry. Um, and so I guess I've never really understood any way of making art that isn't about its audience, uh, that isn't about talking to people, that isn't about empathy and understanding humans. Um, and I guess, you know, if you look through all of the work I've done, it's all been looking at that kind of intersection of class and ethnicity. Um, and I guess that's me, isn't it? That, and ultimately, I think a lot of what we're doing in terms of representation and, and storytelling is kind of going, you're not alone a lot of the time, you know, whoever you are, you're not alone. And there are loads of us and we all experience, you know, the richness of, of the human condition, I guess. Um, but yeah, pushing forward with it uh, and, and trying to keep the door open where possible now. So basically what you're saying is that a door was opened for you by someone who could see your potential and then translate it into more middle-class language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which is useful because, you know, like ultimately there are codes, aren't there? There are middle class codes, there are working class codes. And I think you've got to at least recognize them and know what they are, whether you choose to then adopt them, play with them, use them. It's up to the individual. But I think, you know, to, to go, oh, OK, that's how it works is really important. And a big part of keeping us out is not letting us know how it works, of course. So, Becky, can you... Tell me a bit about how you got involved in the access scheme. Yeah, it made me laugh. Actually, introduced me. He said, "Born in Stockport, went to went to Manchester, and is working for Manchester." I think I need to leave, don't I? <laughs> been in for too long. Um, yeah, so I only, I mean, I'm a newbie, I guess, sort of to to the profession. I graduated um, 2019, so I've been out for nearly two years now, but feels like one with with what's been going on. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, I always wanted to act um, and I'm, you know, really passionate sort of about Northern talent. And I feel like as soon as as soon as I graduated, um, the university are fantastic at sort of offering these graduate internships. Um, and although it was something I, I hadn't had experience in, I sort of wanted to dive right in. And, and my position was essentially helping to design and develop um, an outreach scheme, uh, helping to support underrepresented people getting into drama school. Um, so it felt like an opportunity I could sort of use 
the experience that I'd just done by going through drama school myself. So rather than getting someone in admin to do it, I thought, you know, I can really apply um, what I know and help. And yeah, basically help to enrich that for people who are who are wanting to go into the arts and have absolutely no idea how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So going back to what Matthew was saying about codes to help you fit in, I'd like to quote from Annette Kuhn. Class is something beneath your clothes, underneath your skin, in your reflexes, your psyche, and at the very core of your being. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't fit in? For instance, you didn't quite get the level of banter. You just felt a little bit alien. Yeah, I've been in that situation. I call that situation the British theatre industry. <laughs> you know like the whole thing is is about these middle class codes ultimately um i i think that's fascinating like it being in your skin and your core uh we were talking before we started recording weren't we about like whether it's possible to change class and how the you know in certain places they don't have class they just have were you born poor and how are you doing now you know and it's purely related to financials and then in this country, of course, there were all these other little barriers and uh, obstacles in the way that then, because of intersectionality, uh, affect your class, you know, um, so that you can be wealthy and still be working class. Uh, you can be poor and be middle class, you know, <laughs> like, nothing, it, none of it correlates, none of it, it's, it's, I think it's a system, ultimately, the class system, of course, designed by those at the top to keep the working classes and those below them, you know, otherwise they don't exist. Becky, can you explain to me how the access scheme you're involved in will help people overcome the cultural barriers we've been talking about? The main thing I guess we were trying to target with the scheme is is we sort of had to work backwards in terms of, you know, how did we find out about drama school? How, you know, how did focus groups with loads of people in my year and, and the alumni and sort of had to work backwards and think, how do you find out about that? And obviously it t- it tends to be at schools or at youth groups or, or, you know, whatever. And I think, I think for us, it was making sure that, you know, a lot of the schools where the first thing to go off curriculum is the arts when they are poorly funded. And therefore there's absolutely no access route for those students to be able to find out anything about, um, about drama schools and so our sort of thing was making sure we had a representative and um you know started from that point um thinking how can we just let people know how to do it and also our scheme what we provided was a one-on-one mentor and we tried to provide someone with you know the similar background so that they could sort of give an honest you know opinion as to how it would help them to apply um because I think that's the main thing is just, you know, some people that they'll have never even looked at a Shakespeare piece. And that is one of the requirements for all drama schools is, you know, having a Shakespeare, having a modern. And I think one of the great shifts that's happening at the moment, actually, is that's, you know, Shakespeare isn't the most important thing anymore. A lot of schools are letting people bring, if they've got a musical talent, a dance talent and and whatever else, just to bring a bit more of themselves into it so that the structure of what auditions look like is massively changing. How about you, Mandy? How can we enable more working class artists to work in the arts? Oh, I think it's a really, really complicated situation, really. And I think, as Becky quite rightly pointed out, it's getting harder and harder and harder 
because if we look at who's on our screens and who's on our stages currently predominantly they're white usually often very often men and some women who've been to public schools or oxbridge and that's still it is changing but not but not not not, not quickly enough we certainly aren't seeing that many disabled people um on our screens and on our stages we are but the, but you know there's a handful of people who are getting the you know the, the people call on so there aren't that many disabled deaf or visually impaired people on this stage or screen or not enough anyway and i think you know a lot of it is about is about economics um many disabled people end up on benefits and to be able to give up benefits to get employment of any kind is a really big thing um and certainly if you're working class and a disabled person intersectionally you know that intersectionality the thoughts of a career full stop are often not even discussed or presented to you and certainly not a career in the creative industries one of the key things i think that becky touched on as well for instance if you are a disabled or a deaf person and you're interested in uh, working in theatre or the performing arts in any way you know that things like the introduction to those are often through drama through uh, youth youth drama initiatives the access to youth drama initiatives for disabled and deaf people has been and continues to be still negligible so it's okay saying that we make our youth theatres as many but if there are no disabled or deaf young people in your youth theatre learning about a what what acting or being on a stage or stage management is about they're certainly not going to have access or consider themselves eligible for applying to drama schools even so there is that you know it's such a multi-layered problem i think and that isn't to say that we haven't got breakouts and that it isn't changing but i think there are so many dimensions around class around disability around gender and uh, people don't like to hear this but you know it's a, it's about how you look we know that companies often i mean certainly as an actor i get stuff and really often they'll be looking for um uh say a wheelchair user but it will be the character will be a wheelchair user who used to be non-disabled which is code for doesn't look too disabled so it could be anybody who's just sitting in a wheelchair you know which is really a you know it's really not helpful and i don't know if people even realize that's what they're doing but that that's what when i get you know when i get um sent to someone someone going up they're auditioning for disabled people and i look at it i know that because i look physically disabled as well that they're not going to be confused to me because there's no way that they would go oh yeah that used to be someone who's non-disabled Matthew, could you comment on the intersection between race and class? I'm particularly interested in your thoughts on why people of colour are so often assumed to be disadvantaged. Yeah. And therefore all lumped together under the banner of working class. Yeah. Um, I think it's another useful kind of single narrative, isn't it, that allows somebody else's lens to dictate our experiences, ultimately. Where I grew up, we were all together. The white working, my, my mum's white working class. My grandfather's white working class. Yeah. My, my dad met my mum in a blues. You were talking about blues before we started recording <laughs> uh, in the in the 70s. That's where they met. Um, 
And that was because, of course, what you get in in low income areas is an affordable place for low income migrancy to kind of put down roots. And so you sometimes you do get a kind of clash, but ultimately over time you get people living, working, breeding, <laughs> you know, coming together, making families. Um, and so it, I think it's divisive for this this narrative that says you know the most underserved group of people is the white working class um it's just another way of, of fracturing us isn't it uh ultimately um and then of course you know sometimes you look around at, at people who have made it who are uh not white uh and you look at their backgrounds and you go oh of course they went to the same red brick universities or they've had some of those same experiences so it's who's let into the club and again that club is often about class uh before anything else someone asked me about the glass ceiling i said it's like um it's a tower block of every floor is a glass ceiling so you break through one and you think yeah you smash your head on the second floor you know yeah the glass ceiling depends whether there's an elevator as well you know because if you <laughs> the glass ceiling you need to climb the stairs i mean one of the big issues for us is disabled horses and people you know it's the whole term of diversity because very often what people do is they pick and choose it's a pick and mix for the privileged about exactly which type of diverse people they need <laughs> and again that puts against one another you know because sometimes you you can argue that you know very specific initiatives while they include one section of the diverse actually positively exclude the other sections of the diverse so we're all scrabbling around for the crumbs you know from the rich man's table to use the outdated but still relevant phrase Becky, I'm really interested to know how diverse are the managers at Manchester Theatre School? Yeah, I think actually that's one of the, the major problems we were sort of coming up against when we were designing this scheme because it's, it's sort of going off what Matthew and Mandy were just saying is that, look, you can put as many of these fantastic outreach, access, diversity, whatever you want to call it, schemes out there at the beginning sort of entry level but you don't want to give anyone sort of this false sense of security that, you know, they're going to do this six weeks brilliant diversity scheme on how to get into drama school. And then they get in and they go, hang on a minute, this is completely unrecognisable to almost what I was promised, you know, and that's a huge thing as well. You, you want to make sure whatever scheme you're doing represents the school because, you know, the makeup of, of when you get into it, the curriculum, and I know this is a massive shift that's happening in drama schools at the minute. Um, you know, we don't want to put out all these fantastic schemes so people feel, you know, I want to use the word safe, to go and train there and then they get there and, and it's nothing like what they were promised. So I think it's hard because obviously there needs to be a huge shift and especially in drama schools where it's been so classically elitist um, for so many decades and I think that's also because of how competitive they are they're always going to get their intake. So there's never been that funding to ensure that they do these schemes because they think we're going to get our intake. We don't need to market ourselves. I don't know any drama schools that need to market themselves, you know. So in that in that sense, straight away, they're not doing outreach because they're not going beyond their own front door to say like, hey, here we are and you can do this because people come to them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
the makeup of the school and this is a this is a big thing I know obviously uh, with the after effects of Black Lives Matter there were so many horrendous stories coming out about um about drama school and you know picking on particular members of staff and this is going to be a huge overhaul I think of, of trying to get people to reapply for their own jobs you know to actually see if they're even qualified to do what they're doing at the minute because it's, a, it's the same with lots of arts organisations. It's People just sort of pass between them with never even having to apply. I think that's the case in a lot of art, arts organisations. People don't even get interviewed. You go, here's my mate who did something here, you know, come down. And I get that's in a sense, you know, because people are trusted. But in a university setup, people need to apply for them to see if they're, you know, rightly qualified to do the job that they're doing. And I think the same people have been teaching in these institutions for the last 50 years. Uh, without ever having to sort of, you know, do a training day or even prove that <laughs> that they should be there. Um, so I think there's a yeah, there's a massive overturn in in the managing of of the schools um, and just sort of broadening the teaching staff as well. It's yeah, the curriculum needs to change basically. Matthew, do you feel British theatre reflects who you are? The, the bits of it I make. <laughs> um, no. No, I don't really. Um, I, I, I think it's much better at it, and I think we're we're moving forwards. Uh, but every time we move forwards, we also move backwards a bit, you know. So, like, it feels like in the nineties, there was loads of great, positive, small kind of remit-specific companies and organisations who were serving their communities, and then that was all stripped away, and the big houses were expected to now serve these really big constituencies. Um, you know, like you look, if you just think about kind of black theatre companies in the 90s and the 80s, I can name 10 of them, you know. Now I can name three of them, two of them, maybe. Um, the same with kind of disability arts uh, groups and companies, uh, the same with kind of feminist, any kind of uh, single cause remit theatre company, you know, they've all just been stripped back. So it is now, now we're relying on those big organisations who only produce six shows a year in one of those shows. They've got to do this group of people. This group. So what they need to get to move towards is a more holistic understanding of the world, which is more like the high street that I walk down, uh, and put that on stage a bit more, because then we're all looked after. <laughs> do you think this means we need more working class and people of colour and disabled leaders in the arts? Yeah. Um, I'm going to quote a, another brilliant human, uh, Roy Alexander Wise, who just said something like, um, you know, the thing about people like us running companies is diversity isn't an add-on. It's our lived experience. Uh, and in a way, the moment you're marginalized for one part of your identity, it's much easier to empathize uh, with other people who have been marginalized. So you start to think about, again, what it feels like to put the world on stage in your buildings and to enable the world to access all of the opportunities that you're, you're providing finding where those barriers are um, and trying to get rid of them, ultimately. Mandy, as a sociologist, actor and cultural activist, why doesn't theatre reflect people like us? I think it is starting to change. And I think the Arts Council is starting to address it, is beginning to address it. And I think it comes back to what Becky said earlier, you know, that the Arts Council and other funding organisations have to look at who they fund and why they fund them. And, you know, we've had years of, of larger organisations just assuming and presuming they will automatically get their funding because they have. 
because they've got powerful people on their boards who can go and speak to them, speak for them if they get threatened. So, but I think it is changing. I think the problem is that it's such, again, you know, it's such a multi-layered thing because, you know, it's great having a disabled artistic director, for instance, at a rep, if they're not actually, A, addressing diversity as a whole, or B, being allowed to do what they need to do to address those things, you know, because one person within an organisation, which is very often what happens around diversity, they'll go, oh, we, we'll, we'll have a black artistic director, or oh, we'll put a play on by a disabled writer. And they think, organisations think that that's it, they've done it somehow. Do you know what I mean? They've ticked the box, they've satisfied their funders because it's all terribly high profile. But the support has to be given to the people who are doing those jobs. And then, you know, you can't expect one person. We see this so often, you know, people are set up to fail, basically, you know, and with the best will in the world often. But, you know, people are put into positions that they're not given the level of support they need. They're not given the power, actually, that they need to be able to make certain decisions, to be able to implement certain policies, to be able to put on the stage what they want to, or surround themselves with the creative influences and you know take a risk on a new disabled writer that nobody's ever heard of for instance so there are all so many and i think that's why you know been them and those people who have had comfortable passages and comfortable seats at that table are not always willing to give them up either you know they'll get very defensive but we've got black people but we had to play on you know, with disabled people. Oh, we had a learning disabled actor once. People loved it, you know, and they won an award for that. You know, they, they, think that's, they think that's the way to do it. And actually it's about systemic and radical change. Thank you, Mandy. So Becky, to what extent do you feel the curriculum you study support the access schemes you're trying to develop? How diverse do you think the content of what you were studying actually was. Did you have any texts by disabled actors? Did you have visiting lecturers who were people of colour? I mean, sort of, the short answer is no. I did three oh. terms of Russian naturalism. <laughs> that was sort of by accident. Probably because I was crap, so they had to keep making me do it again and again. You just did Chekhov forever and ever and ever. You know, it, it's hard because even in the two years, you know, I've been gone, it, it's already changed quite remarkably, which is great. Um, but, you know, you just mentioned Roy actually before Matthew and he came in to do one of our final year shows and he was, I mean, he was just fantastic. But actually what you were all just speaking about then, um, it made me sort of think about showcase because it's a horrible, you know, situation for any actor in third year where you sort of made to sort of, confront exactly what you know you're casting or whatever it is and picking material is so hard because you've got to pick these two contrasting pieces and I was just thinking you know normally if you're northern or you're black or you're disabled you you pick a piece that represents that and then you have to do a contrast and that's always really muddled my brain because I think why is not two things within that a contrast you know, just because I'm from Newcastle, I then have to show that I can do a Southern accent, which makes no sense because within 
my you know who I am as a Geordie there's so much range and whatever and I think that's one of the things that is is really faulted about um about drama school showcases is sort of saying that the makeup of you you is then yeah you then have to do something else which shows you're sort of as a standard actor which is ridiculous and I think that's the one thing that um drama school has got a long way to go on is is making sure that what they teach doesn't it's not just about yeah like you say you know employing um a disabled member of staff or doing uh you know a black playwright or or whatever it's about attributing everyone's background to whatever they're doing and I think that's what needs to be changed is you know we can all do a Chekhov play I'm not saying abolish Chekhov not that I love it but you know um, <laughs> it's just making sure that in the training everyone can put their own experience onto Chekhov and do it in in their own way I think that's a big conversation to be had um, you know it's not about the tick box you know having this person, this person, this person on the curriculum. It's just making sure that, you know, and for the teacher's safety as well, I think this is where it needs to go into training, is making sure that they feel comfortable enough to to do that. Um, I think, we, you know, a lot of what's come out about drama schools at the minute is is obviously bashing teachers quite a lot. But I think for their own sake, they need to be able to, you know, to bring everyone's experiences to whatever characters and whatever text you're learning at drama school. So thank you, Becky. Becky was talking about uh, drama school showcases. They're like an audition, but much bigger. They tend to be for talent agents, directors and casting directors. And it's an opportunity for actors to show the range of skills they've been developing during their time at drama school. So the showcase is usually held at the end of uh, three years of training. So we've talked a lot about class and I just want to talk a little bit about the precariat class, which has been growing a lot during austerity in the last few years. 15% of the workforce is now precariat. By that, I mean existing without any predictability or security. How can we engage with the precariat class, given that a lot of actors are probably in the precariat class? They just need to see something that has something true about their life experience, whether that be as a woman, as a disabled person, as a woman of colour, you know, as a as a gay man, you know, as a working class black woman, whatever, working class Asian woman, whatever that is. And it doesn't mean that it absolutely has to be reflective of it. You know, I don't just go and see disabled artists on 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 performance. Um, you know, I do I do watch men as well, even as a woman. You know, so it's not about being so restrictive in that. But I think it's about, you know, the traditionally, you know, the art and particularly what's held up as high art has not reflected most people's experience, you know, because it's been about the, the picture of or a, a snapshot of upper class or upper middle class life, you know, and that doesn't appeal. You know, you can watch it on the telly because you don't have to make much effort, but you're not going to pay... 15, 20 quid to go and sit in a the theatre, you know. And also those things about, you know, the, the spaces themselves, how welcome are they? You know, because there is, you, you know, I know certainly as a working class person myself, and even though I go all the time, you know, there are places I go to and I feel overwhelmed and I feel like, oh, God, I feel like I shouldn't be here, you know, because everyone's mm. dressed to the lines. Yeah. You know, the, the staff are not necessarily as friendly as they could be. 
Um, nobody seems to know whether it is an accessible toilet or not. Everyone runs around going, oh, God, have we taken the seat out? You know, all those kinds of things. Mm, you know, yeah. It's not just about what's on the stage. It's about the whole experience of going, or going to an art gallery or mm. going to a dance piece and not seeing anybody in the audience who looks, sounds or even dresses like you. So all of those things that also have to be taken into consideration. And I think it's all, you know, it's all of those things and others that make or break the decision for most working class people or the precarious as to whether they will go and see something, if they can even afford to do it in the first place. Matthew, as you know, a lot of freelance staff are precarious. Could you please comment on the ways in which COVID has impacted on theatre and the precariat class? Yeah, well, I think, like you say, it's that that precariat class, uh, and I, I assume precariat has a kind of etymology that relates to precarious. You know, like you, it could all crumble at any moment, uh, <laughs> and and it has crumbled, hasn't it? That's what's happened for so many people. Uh, and again, you know, it, what it means it means that the the safety net isn't there, of course. So when you fall, you've got to find somewhere to land. And if that means you're landing in a warehouse or you're landing on, uh, you know, UBI or some other support system, then that's what it's going to be. But then you're starting from scratch again. You can't just re-enter, you know, at the level you were because the means aren't there to be able to do that because the industry that we we have chosen to exist in is a risk. Um, to be an artist in this country is a risk, uh, so, which is why... Those who come into it, you know, so many people who kind of come into it and play with it for a bit and then leave and and go and do a completely different career, not because of being precariat class, uh, because they just want to have a go. <laughs> it, it wasn't about their their soul, their core, you know, their desire to express. Um, they, they thought they may go on to do something else. Do you think the government... And the Arts Council have been fair in the ways they've been distributing funds to alleviate the impact of COVID? It hasn't gone to the small rural touring companies or those remit-specific companies. You know, it's gone to, to bricks and mortar, essentially, with the hope that that will trickle down to the artists. And, and all the companies in the world with the best will in the world can try and get that money to companies. But if they've got a gaping hole in their in their projected budget which says we've we're down four million then that's where that money's got to go you know otherwise they're all out of jobs as well but that's not well i was gonna say it's not not through the choice of those those executive directors or the arts council even it's because it was handled by dcms at top level and the arts council were just doling out the cash to whoever kind of ticked the right boxes in accordance with what dcms had set up had it been, I think, kind of officiated and arranged and designed by the people who run buildings and companies, we would have immediately been thinking about how can we get this to the people who make the art. So, Becky, as a recent graduate, you managed to get a full-time job. How have your um, fellow graduates coped with COVID? I think we were actually in the worst hit year group because we were we didn't have the proof of tax so our year didn't actually get any of the benefits from the government's um self-employed scheme because the graduates of 2019 obviously we hadn't had a year out to be able to prove we were self-employed so it's been really hard I think one thing that um definitely I think 
you know, a lot of institutions are channeling at the minute is training people to be creatives and not just to be actors, um, which is fantastic. You know, you get a lot more workshops in writing or, you know, directing short filmmaking. And I think people have have sort of managed to to channel that a bit more and try and push that when they've not got their acting jobs. But I know there's been a, you know what, actually, there's been, people are so sympathetic and the industry has actually been wonderful this past year because people you normally can't get in a room with or you know you don't even know what they look like they've got the time to sit down and have a coffee with you and you know just chat to you for 15 minutes and I actually think it's made everyone a bit more human um especially in this really scary sort you know especially in the world of tv and screen I think people in theatre have always been a bit more engaging but um people yeah like Matthew was saying the, the doors are just a bit more open people have are giving the time even just with conversation, I know that doesn't necessarily mean people are going to be any more financially stable. Um, but just having those conversations, I think, has been so enriching for for graduates. Um, and I hope that continues. I hope that's not because I think with COVID, people have had to readjust, um, you know, the way they they deal with day to day. And I hope I hope that continues because I want the sympathy card to be played forever. <laughs> forever. <laughs> so as we come to the end of our time today. I'm interested to know what you're all going to go on and do and if you've got any last thoughts. Becky? I really want to, con- to continue doing this work. I think there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, and so, you know, I want to continue to be in a position like this, I think. I think as well, though, it's sort of, it's made me to realise, actually, I'm talking about teachers and, and everyone sort of needing to go on more training. And I think that's something I want to continue, sort of develop my own creative practice and you know, continue to go on to make myself more educational about things because I think that's really important as well to not sort of design these programmes where maybe I'm not the right person to do it yet, but I will be. That was wonderful, Becky. (laughs) Thank you so much. It's so heartening to know that um, there are young people willing to take on the mantle of cultural activist um, laid out by people like Mandy and Matthew. So Mandy... What's next for you? And any final thoughts? So I hope that people who do cultural events will maintain the kind of mixed economy of it now, you know, because there's no, you cannot no longer, you cannot long, any longer say that we can't do it. You have to physically be in the space to share our cultural outputs. So yes, access has improved a lot, hasn't it, during COVID? The generosity and kindness of so many organisations has been amazing. Matthew, do you have any last thoughts? And what's next for you? Um, yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, there's been a big period of reflection, hasn't there, ultimately, for many people uh, about who's not in the room, who can't get in the room, who doesn't want to be in the room because they don't feel like the room wants them in it in the first place. Buy that room. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I, 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 what can we do at ATC is a question I'm always asking. So we've kind of looking at cultural change, behavioral change, organizational change. Um, how accessible are we? What opportunities can we create for people? Um, and again, we're Diddy, you know, there are like three of us in the team. It's, it's really small. Um, but we've just launched an associate director position in, a, in partnership with Lambda. So £23,000 a year. Four years, six months with us, six months with Lambda, uh, um, and that is ring fenced for someone who has experienced social economic barriers to employment in the arts, 
so you know i i it's just kind of what can we do is the thing I'm always thinking because uh, I can theorize and have big hypothetical dreams about what everyone else can do, uh, but I can't affect them so easily. So I can focus on my own plot of land for now. <laughs> Matthew, you've had remarkable success providing access to diverse artists, particularly at the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester. And we hope you'll continue being successful at the Actors Touring Company. <laughs> yeah, if I can find other people's money and I can get it to other people, then uh, I will continue to be Robin Hood or whatever it is. <laughs> so I'd like to thank Becky, Matthew and Mandy. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Hello, I am Millie Gaston. In this segment, I will be chatting to artists across an array of disciplines, from writers to performers, backstage and anything in between, by asking them a series of questions about their experience of working in theatre. I would love to welcome internationally renowned writer, director and actor, Olivier and BAFTA award-winning John Godber OBE, and his daughter Martha Godber, an actor and regular member of the John Godber Company, who has worked nationally in theatre, television and radio. John set up the John Godber Company, which he runs alongside his wife, Jane Thornton, and daughter, Elizabeth Godber. John, Martha, welcome. It is so great to have you on the podcast. John, it's, it's thought that you are the third most performed playwright in the UK, behind William Shakespeare and Alan Aitborn, and it is undoubted that you have had a remarkable career to date. Your most recent work, Sunny Side Up at the Stephen Joseph, brilliantly explores the life of a man who returns home to his end-of-the-line childhood town, having worked his way up to success and money. He's faced with a feeling of not knowing where he belongs. Is it the new middle-class world he's built or his heritage and family roots? How much of the story do you identify with? And, and can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming John Godber? Well, I've always been John Godber, even when I was 11. Um, <laughs> I think we pay a lot of lip service to how much we're connected to, inverted commas, working class roots. And, and there's no doubt about it. I'm from, my dad was a miner, my mum was a dinner lady. Uh, but artists become declassé very quickly. That is, where do they exist? Where, they, where do they fit in? Uh, and you can't help but notice that some of our Yorkshire coastal towns have been forgotten. And the question is, why have they been forgotten? And what is Boris's task of levelling up the difference between, you know, the money spent in the South, especially after the Brexit vote, and the money spent in the North? And that's really what, that was a starting point to, to, to introduce the play. Becoming John Godber has been a long process. Uh, Martha has been part of that process over the last 23 years. Um, but, yeah, I, I tell you what's interesting, though, Millie, you, you never think you are anybody other than who you are. And I think as a, as a, as a playmaker and someone who's written a lot of plays, it, weirdly, I'm not dropping names, Jim Cartwright rang me yesterday and we had two hours on the phone, Jim and I, talking about how important it is when you've written a lot of plays to pretend you've not written any. So your first play out of lockdown or, or, or your last play, your latest play, always feels like the first play. Um, otherwise, it becomes too knowing and it, and, it, and it loses any authenticity and any kind of um, uh, originality, I think. Yeah, you've compared it to sport before where you've said you're only as good as your last performance. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, we can go and get the BAFTAs and show you them if you want. The, the Olivia Awards at my dad's, but, but that's pointless. It doesn't mean anything. You know, what, 
what what matters is is what you're playing today. And I think that's that's the same for actors. And the whole thing, the difficulty in lockdown is what have people been doing, you know, and there'll be a lot of people who, I think sadly there'll be a lot of people who think, do you know what, I don't know if I can hack it. Um, which kind of perfectly leads me on to my next question, which is uh, a question in two parts. So John London is often thought of as the creative hub of the UK. What's led you to stay in the North and, and what inspires you to create the worlds and characters like Bouncers, um, Lucky Eric, Jared Lass and Ralph? Well, I, I guess the simple answer is I live here. I would have been a different writer had I gone to London. I perhaps wouldn't have written as many plays had I not run Hull Truck. And don't forget, I run Hull Truck for over a quarter of a century. That's, you know, that's, there's only Alan Aitbon up there with that kind of track record uh, in terms of longevity. So working in a theatre, the onus fell on me to, to make work that was uh, accessible, cheap, popular and, and um, successful. That's why I wrote so much. And then that becomes a kind of model and again, going back to, you know, if you want to write plays, write plays. Uh, if you want to be an actor but nobody's employing you, write your own plays. And I can't I can't help but notice, Millie, that you've picked that ball up and you're starting to run with it. Uh, and I, and I, I think there's something about that where you, if people won't give you work, make your own work. It's very simple. Become your own icon. Become your own source. I think it's really important for writers to write to a constituency that they have a connection with. Yeah, I think that I think that's really well put. Um, and I feel I should say that um, Martha and myself are very good friends who have worked together for Elizabeth Gobber's theatre company, Smashing Mirrors. And I can say firsthand as a cast and audience member, she is a brilliant actor. As a member of the John Gobber Company, um, you've had the opportunity to play some original roles um, and some classic roles like Hazel from Up and Under, which your mum originated. How's that been for you? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was quite mad because I feel like Up and Under. Obviously, growing up, all my dad's plays have been extremely significant to me. I've always known about them, um, literally from being little. There's been posters on our wall. There's been my dad, mum, and dad going off to do different work and stuff like that. So very fortunate to have grown up around that and oh, I think Up and Under has always been one of those things where I knew my mum originally played Hazel and I, I was just kind of waiting for the time that I could do that really um, and obviously that came around and it was it was brilliant I think it was really special for me to be able to do that and kind of like see the photo of my mum in the exact same thing in the play that I was doing the exact same scene now I'm at like kind of a point where I am working in my career and and being able to take part in my dad's work and stuff like that that for me is like a really great thing that I'm extremely grateful for and I I, I we love like collaborating together and and working together and stuff don't we yeah, of course we do. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> pause there. <laughs> um, but yeah, definitely. Yeah, because you also um, took This Is Not Right down to London. Um, how was it performing that play in, in London, kind of carrying on from what we were talking about before? Yeah, it was, um, that, that play was so about Hull and it was so northern and... Um, it was it was about kind of Hull being a bit of a forgotten city and basically a student who goes and goes to uni in London and then the contrast of her being in London and then going back up north back home and that massive contrast um, 
of kind of sticking out like a sore thumb, really. The point of the play, and I think it's a recurrent theme, really, in, in my work is, is where do you come from and, and where do you fit in and how do you feel if you go away? And, and I, I think, and as, as you've, you know, uh, confessed, we do know each other, and I, I don't think there's much difference between going away from a less working-class city than Hull might be to university and then, and then going home, because it, you do feel like Pandora's putting you back in the box, and it's to do with the freedom, it's to do with the multifaceted nature of different experiences. And it's also, sadly, to do with the fact that if you go somewhere like my, I went to Liverpool, you went to Manchester, I, I, I went to Leeds University, which is, you know, even back then was a big, big city. And then you go back to the sleepy village you come from, whether it's Harrogate, Knaresborough or Upton, you, you start to wonder, well, what happened? I think also people have opinions of northern cities without even kind of having the right to that opinion. Like, I remember going to university in Liverpool and obviously everyone way from and say, oh, I'm from Hull and everyone kind of goes, oh. And it's like, have you even been there? Or are you just literally saying that because you think that it's like a rubbish northern city? And, And the truth of the matter is they haven't been. They're just saying it because they might have seen it once and that's what what everyone says kind of thing. So I think that the perception of northern cities sometimes is really kind of unfairly um negative to us yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i think that's a fair point i think what's fascinating just this might just illustrate again with chance do you remember about it yesterday i did a several years ago i did a talk back for bouncers in bromley to a group of 500 uh, school students all from the south and they said to me uh, why did you why did you set the play in the north I said, well, you've heard me speak. Why, why do you think I said it in the north? I said, I don't know if you're aware, but that Yorkshire's bigger than London. And they were gobsmacked because they'd actually, they'd not considered that. And they'd not considered that actually they needed to look out just as much as we needed to reach out and to have, you know, and to try to demystify the metropolitan sense. I don't think that we will ever get a level playing field with regard to bias. I think there is so uh, metrocentric thinking. I know you'll have inspired many people by wanting to stay and celebrate the North. How has the Northern theatrical landscape changed from your days at Bretton Hall as a drama student to present? Well, I think it was a lot easier then when I was at Bretton. I mean, don't forget, I trained to be a teacher and then I went to Leeds University to do a, a master's degree and I did a five-year research degree while I was teaching before I came to Hall. There was a kind of naivety when I came to Hall because I didn't know you could make theatre work in Hall. And obviously you can, but there's, you know, let, let's not pretend that every working class person in Hull goes to the theatre. They don't. Not every cl- working class person in London goes to the theatre. They don't. Not every middle class person in the theatre in, in, in London goes to the theatre. So we have, I, I think we have an issue. I think the issues are the questions that artists always ask themselves. Is that who are we making work for? Who are we speaking to? Who do, and what do we want to speak about? Uh, I've always believed that, you know, let's try and get as many people as possible to go to the theatre. Um, now, sometimes that's viewed as being a bit lowbrow. It doesn't have to be. Shakespeare has, a, you know, wanted to do exactly the same thing. But I think we, I think there will be cost implications going forward. I think anybody who has been on universal credit or been furloughed and possibly lost the job going forward might not want to spend £25 for three of them you know, £75 a head to go and see a show when they're struggling. 
I went to see a production of a, of a show of mine in, in Recklinghausen about seven or eight years ago, and the tickets were five quid. Of course it was full. The tickets were five quid. And then that, two nights later, I went to see a show in a massive venue, and the tickets were three quid. It was packed. Now, that is fantastic. That is a, that is a, that is a society recognising that theatre is important, that the arts are important, and putting their money where their mouth is. Sadly, we're in a situation where we're last, you know, we're last in the queue. Theatre makers are last in the queue. They're last in, uh, self-employed artists are last in the queue. And, and unfortunately, it gives you the impression of what the government really think about the arts. And, I, you know, so, so I go back to the original point I made, that then the artists, I believe, have to find some kind of cohesion and stand together. Yeah, and I think that's something that you're already doing because the John Gobber Company um, is very much a family affair. And Martha, I think you've referred to before as a family business like no other, which I can confirm it is not your everyday family business. But um, as well as producing theatre, the company does so much for the whole community through outreach and your new initiative, the John Gobber Theatre Foundation, set up by yourself, Martha. Can you tell us a little bit more about the programme and why you decided to launch the foundation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we launched the foundation last September and it was kind of an idea that I had early in lockdown one. Um obviously just kind of sitting around all day wanting to do something and I'm really passionate about Hull and young people of Hull and um, trying to give young people from Hull a platform and, and more opportunities and it kind of led me to think of launching the foundation really and I think what probably inspired me is that growing up obviously with my mum and dad I had unique opportunities where I was able to kind of sit in on rehearsals and maybe meet actors and talk to actors and I always wanted to be an actor um so for me that kind of like shaped who I am as a performer really and obviously gave me like a lot more knowledge subconsciously and consciously about the industry I was going into and I can't the fact what inspired the foundation was to kind of create those same opportunities for people without them connections because I understand that obviously my circumstance is an extremely unique like circumstance you always kind of hear that thing of it's not what you know it's who you know and a lot of the time you know you don't know anyone and I think that in this industry that is extremely difficult to get your foot in the door when you might not know anyone around you that even has an interest in theatre or performance or whatever. So that's kind of what inspired me to start it, really. Um, we're kind of six months running now, um, which is crazy. And we've got 17 students who are studying at drama schools and universities all across the world, even, um, that we're supporting on that. And And we've been running workshops. Obviously, everything is still online at the minute because of COVID, as we know. Um, but we've been running workshops. We've tried to kind of reach out as much as possible with unique opportunities. We've had artistic directors, um, Paul Robinson from Stephen Joseph, uh, Mark Babich from Hull Truck. So the aim of it is to really just kind of create a network with Northern creatives as, as well as maybe people in London and things, because that's something that I'm really passionate about, kind of staying in the North, creating opportunities there. So I think it's important to link them up with people who are creating theatre 
in the north so they don't feel like they have to think right I've graduated from drama school university I need to move to London if I want a kind of career in this not at all and that's something that I really want to emphasize and um try and just give them as many opportunities as possible here so they don't feel like they have to move away from where they're from really Finally, there seems to be a light at the end of the theatreless tunnel. Um, what does the John Gobler Company and Foundation have in store for 2021? Uh, well, some of it's a secret, so I can't tell you, but I will. <laughs> um, so we're, we're looking at, we've been approached quite out of the blue by an enormous property company in Hull, uh, who are right across the north, and they've invited us to do a project, which we're very excited about, um, and, and can you believe they're going to fund it, which is uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, it will be at an outdoor venue somewhere near Burt's Pizza uh, Emporium and uh, and Hudgel's Solicitors just opposite the deep. Oh, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so we're doing that very soon. Uh, we're, we're currently, um, and again, how bizarre is this? We've been approached by the police, haven't we? To um, to make a to make a short film, which again has been funded, uh, which after you know after twelve months of earning not a not, not a penny, um, suddenly there's a couple of things on the horizon. Later in the year, we think we're going to take Sunnyside up out on tour, and that will be a co-production between ourselves and Theatre Royal Wakefield. Um, and the future for the foundation looks great as well, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think. I'm really excited about potentially doing things practically with the foundation because obviously this is something that we have literally set up in the pandemic. So some of the students we have on the foundation haven't even met in person, um, which is crazy. So, yeah, I'm just looking forward to hopefully doing more practical projects with them, doing more practical workshops, being able to potentially do things over the summer. Um, we're hoping to launch a digital showcase as well. Um, specifically for the foundation students who are graduating. So kind of Yorkshire, Northern Theatre Companies and freelance directors um, can watch that and create connections again with the foundation students. So again, really exciting things coming up. I think we're just looking forward to doing things in a more practical manner. And then in September 2021, hopefully we will be able to take more students in the new cohort and continue to support them also. That sounds amazing and looks like you're both going to be very busy. Well, the whole family will be very busy. Um, and also, if, if you do get a chance to see Sunnyside Up, I, I cannot express it. It is absolutely brilliant. I saw it in the autumn of 2020 and, yeah, definitely go and watch it. So just as in our previous episode, I'd like to end with a quote of yours, John. There are young people growing up who deserve the opportunity to express themselves through the arts in the same way I did. Now, I feel this is a value and, and almost an ethos which your entire family share. So thank you both. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. It has been great to speak to you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Nice to see you. Oh, to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> On both. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>